Welcome to Season 5 of The Farcast, bringing you experts and insiders from Wall Street, Washington, and the world. And now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to The Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. Here we are, November the 5th, coming around into the middle month of the fourth quarter here in 2021. It's been a great year. Stocks up over 20%. The 10-year treasury now down uh, right at 1.5%. Wow, that's big. Uh, We're seeing employment jump back today in today's figures. Markets are looking good. Earnings are coming in stronger than expected. What's not to like in this market? We're going to start today as we cover Wall Street with our great friend, Jim Labenthal from Serity Partners. Then we're going to go to Dan Mahaffey, figure out whether this bill ever gets passed in Washington. And finally, we're very excited to have Dr. Jeffrey Lacker in our third segment, the former president of the Richmond Federal Reserve Bank, distinguished professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, one of the smartest guys we ever talked to in the world of economics. And we get to learn what goes on behind those closed doors at the Federal Reserve. First, Jim Labenthal, Serity Partners, uh, one of the nicest and smartest guys, truly, and one of the best investors I think you're ever going to hear on television. He's thoughtful and he's disciplined. Welcome back, Jim. Michael, you are so kind, uh, but you and I both know that uh, our investment styles are so similar that when you compliment me, you're actually complimenting yourself. That's oh, okay. Oh, Shaw, uh, <laughs> as my Aunt Agnes used to say. Uh, that is that is true. The disciplined approach to investing, uh, that that focus on fundamentals and and holding for the longer term and not trading things too much, I think is how you make money longer term. And I I know that's a lot of what you do. Okay, Jim, we've got a market making new highs. We've got a ten-year Treasury that's rallying, which I don't know that that makes sense to me. What do you make of markets in here, and what do you think about for the end of the year? Yeah, so here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to address your question in first overall market and then go into some of the specific stocks and sectors. The overall market right now is very strong and is likely to crescendo. Uh, this rally is like to, likely to crescendo in the final months of this year. The S&P 500 is up on the year, I think, 25%. Uh, when you have a year like that, the last two months tend to really accentuate the point. And there's there's technical reasons, right? Nobody wants to sell and take capital gains, uh, pay the taxes on them late in the year. And any money manager who has been less than 100% enthusiastic finds themselves chasing the performance bogey and chasing the index, which means they've got to throw money at the market. So I know those are technical reasons, but the market's going to go up on those technical reasons. And then there are the fundamental reasons that economic activity is strong, the labor market is strong, probably get an infrastructure bill. You know, we'll let Dan Mahaffey talk about that with you later, but probably get an infrastructure bill. The Fed may be tapering, but it's still very accommodative. It's still buying bonds. Uh, Profits are high and growing, as you said. So there's a lot of reasons to feel that this market is going to continue for the next few months and probably well into the first quarter of next year. Now, within individual sectors. Hang on one second, Jim. Hang on. That seems an unusually short-term forecast for my friend Labenthal. That's that's not not a typical Labenthal forecast. 
You're not going to let me get away with that, are you? I, I, well, I'm sorry. I do listen to Labenthal. I encourage others to as well. But I mean, for Labenthal to talk about a two-month forecast means that Labenthal is more worried to me. You tell me why I'm hearing a two-month forecast out of you. Careful listeners will note that I was quickly trying to segue, and Michael Farr will have none of it. Um, <laughs> You are you are correct that it is a relatively short term time frame. Um, you know, and I know you agree that we don't try to time corrections. And I'm not suggesting that now either, but I am suggesting that there's going to be a rather enthusiastic uh, spree of buying <laughs> over the end of this year. Okay. And, you know, at some point, the market has to digest that. I think you combine that with that we should should be getting good news on infrastructure spending by the end of the year. And what I just said about the Fed taper, I want to dissect that a little bit because they're cutting their bond buying by 15 billion a month. Now, that means in this month, they're going to go from 120 billion a month to 105 billion. Those are still big numbers. But as the months roll on and you get down towards 75 billion, 60 billion, well, then that supportive effect of the Fed's buying bonds is not going to be as great. And I have said to you before that I think the Fed's buying bonds is a reason you haven't had greater than a 5% correction in the market over the last year. That effect is going to wane as we get into the new year. So that's why I think volatility is going to pick up in the first quarter. But let me, I should get to the punchline. The rally is likely to continue for at least another 12 months just based on strong economic fundamentals. It's volatility that I think is going to pick up as you get to the back half of the first quarter. Yes, short term, but long term, I'm very bullish. Long term, you're very bullish. Short term, you're very bullish. Uh, it sounds like when we get to that February, sort of mid-February period where the damn thing has corrected more years than not out of the last 10, after a rally like this, that's when you're thinking about that pullback. We haven't seen much more than a 5 to 10% pullback and everything, one we've seen so far, Jim, you had to buy because there's yeah. so much cash on the sidelines. Do you sort of see that happening again, or are you suggesting we're going to see something uh, deeper? You, you took the pressure off of me by noting the, the pattern, the historical pattern, that when you have a year in the markets like we're having this year, it usually crescendos into late January and February is where it starts to get wonky. OK, yeah. and it is. And, you know, I, I, that's the sort of historical pattern that professionals like you and I get a little queasy discussing because it's hard to explain why it should be that way. But it is that way. And so that's why I'm making that prediction. But to get to your point, yes, it should be a buy the dip moment. Why? Because of those economic fundamentals. Now, let me dive into that a little deeper. The Fed um, is not going to get hawkish anytime soon. It's not going to raise rates anytime soon. That's the message this week from the Fed. And by the way, in the last two cycles, when the Fed made its first rate hike, you had a solid two years plus of 10% per annum plus gains in the S&P 500. So the Fed getting hawkish doesn't, or excuse me, the Fed raising rates, which again, at least a year away, uh, that doesn't kill the rally. That still means you have probably another couple of years to go, but it does increase volatility. So we've got to be aware of that. Back to the economic fundamentals. 
you've got profits high and growing. What do companies do when that happens, Michael? They take some of those profits and they reinvest in their business, capital expenditures, right. building out supply chains, onshoring right. supply chains, which we know after the year we've had, there is going to be a heck of a lot of construction of new plants, new distribution facilities, new transportation facilities. That is going to happen next year. It's going to propel the economy higher. Um, I could go on and on, but let, let me stop there. Well, I can't wait to ask Jeff Lacker about a bunch of these different things, particularly the ongoing demand issue. Demand is really high. The consumers still have a lot of cash. The consumer is still spending aggressively, and they're putting even more pressure on a supply chain issue that we might have worked through or begun to work through by now, but for all of that cash and all of that pressure. Four and a half trillion dollars in money market funds right now, Jim. Four and a yeah. half trillion dollars in money market funds. That's stunning. I mean, it's just the cash waiting to get invested. It is stunning. It is stunning. Um, you know, what's also stunning is that you are seeing and have for the last year equity ETF and mutual fund flows pick up. Um, yes. That's good for the market. It would be bad if we were at the very tail end of that. But the four point trillion dollar number that you mentioned uh, indicates that's probably not the case. You and I also know that a lot of that money market balance is corporate balances. It's, you know, companies have. Uh, taken out a lot of debt at low levels. They've got cash flows coming in. Um, cash balances in corporate America are high, but it's still that doesn't take away from your point. How closely do you watch Washington and what's going on there as you think about investing over the next couple of years? Do these bills that are on the floor matter? They matter, but they don't keep me up at night. Is that, mm -hmm. is that, is that a, a suitable distinction, a suitable qualification? What I would like to see and what I believe the markets would like to see, they'd like to see this darn bipartisan infrastructure bill pass. I mean, yes, the markets do not like the linking of the reconciliation bill with the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Why do you say they don't like it? Because I don't like it, but why do you say markets don't like it? Because the infrastructure bill is pure positive for the economy and markets. So yes. anything that holds that up is a negative. And yes. linking the two has held it up because the Senate already passed that bill. Now, then there's the fact and that the reconciliation bill has tax increases in it. But those tax increases are nowhere near what they were projected to be two months ago, four months ago, which is when I think the bills were initiated. Uh, so, you know, the fact that you're going to get more spending from the reconciliation bill, but not really punitive tax increases means that that bill as well should be positive when it passes uh, 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 through Congress. So it isn't keeping me up at night. It would be a modest negative if the bipartisan infrastructure bill doesn't pass, but it would be the sort of negative that the markets will get through. There is, uh, th th these are garden variety risks and opportunities coming out of Washington right now. All right, finally, Jim, you talked about what happens at the end of a year when you see markets surge and you talked about how portfolio managers who have been left behind try to scramble, try to reposition portfolios. Others are taking a look at tax loss selling. Others are saying, I can't sell because I've got two uh, embedded gains that are too large and I'll have to pay too much in capital gains tax. What do you do and what does the good portfolio manager do? What does the wise portfolio manager do when faced with a year-end forecast such as this? Ride it. And, you know, Ride it. 
I'm going to channel my inner Michael Farr here because I'm speaking way too short term today. And you know, I don't like it. And Michael, I don't think you like it when I'm this short term. Let's go to the long term picture. For all of our investors, your clients, my clients, the right MO is to stay invested through thick and thin. And by the way, I don't see any existential crisis on the horizon. I don't see, you know, a pandemic reemerging. By the way, great news today from Pfizer on that front. Yes, I don't see a a financial system insolvency problem. I don't see a tech telecom overspending uh, boom going on right now. Now, I've just listed the, the catalysts for the last three bear markets. I just don't see anything like that on the horizon. But even if I did, The right answer to our clients, yours and mine, uh, Michael, is to stay invested because the long-term track record of the S&P 500 and the U.S. stock market is decidedly positive. So my short-term outlook is very bullish, but so is my long-term outlook. Please, folks, stay invested. Please, folks, stay invested. Uh, And as we say on the forecast, listen to Labenthal. Jim Labenthal, a partner at Serity Partners, a contributor, longtime contributor, CNBC on the halftime report. Listen to Labenthal. Jim, thank you so, so much. Michael, thank you so much. And to everybody listening, follow FAR. There you go. We're going to be right back with Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress. See what, if any of this stuff in D.C. makes sense when we come back on the forecast. Michael Farr and the Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting Heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast and your host, Michael Farr. We're glad you could join us this week on the Farcast. Now back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. Great segment with Jim Labenthal. Always love having Jim Labenthal on the Farcast. Now to the wise, uh, to the oracle, to the all-knowing, all-seeing. I feel like I'm inter- inter- introducing a Carson segment. Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress our senior political analyst on season five here of the Farcast, as he has been uh, for season four, season three, season two, and season one. Welcome back, Dan. Thanks, Michael. Good as always to be talking with you. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not wearing the uh, the big Swami's hat because, not just because we're on a podcast, but it's amazing what Carson could get away with that you couldn't nowadays. I remember a particular Dolly Parton segment that will never see the light of day again. Anyway, Dan, and it was funny, folks. It was really funny. Uh, very, very risque for the time. All right, Dan, we've gotten through a Virginia race. We right. still have uh, 
we still have a resurgence of COVID in China. And it looks like, please, how sick are you of listening to when this bill is going to get out of Congress? I mean, every day, oh, it's going to be this week. Oh, it's going to be tonight. Oh, we're going to have a vote by next Thursday. These these uh, just weird deadlines that Congress sets for itself and then fails on over and over again make me crazy. And we all know that the, the real deadline for them is the smell of jet fumes and pine trees, the Christmas holiday. No question about that. And, you know, I think uh, they've been sent a clear message. It seems uh, both sides of the aisle on Capitol Hill from this Virginia gubernatorial election. Mm-hmm. Tell us about it. Well, I think what you saw in Virginia, clearly the, the enthusiasm among Democrats was down. Uh, Yunkin ran a campaign that threaded the needle between the Trump base and the concerns of suburban voters. Uh, And then ultimately, between the factors of, look, Terry McAuliffe was running for governor of Virginia for the third time, hardly a new blood in politics there, Uh, the seemingly languishing presidential agenda, and all of that allowed uh, Republicans to, to swing this. Uh, But also remember, only once in modern political history has the president's party held the Virginia race. It's almost always swung against the president in power. Uh, So that's the the historical context of this. I think now the eyes turn to Yunkin. He created a model for how to run a campaign, keeping Trump at arm's length. Can Republicans continue to do that in 2022 because it worked in Virginia? Uh, Do Democrats heed what they hear about uh, not only getting their agenda moving, but I think what we saw in education here is a is it didn't help that Terry McAuliffe said parents, uh, you know, his gaffe that parents shouldn't be involved in their kids education certainly didn't help. But after two years of school closures and disruptions, the palpable frustration of parents is clear, particularly in a state like Virginia that had very long school closures. I think that's local context that's important to remember. And the wake-up call on education, I think, is that parents want administrators to focus on getting kids back in school and closing this gap of the past year and just get back to the business of getting kids educated. I think that's a, a really important point. I think that voter frustration to get away from the malarkey and get down to those things that really matter to folks in their day-to-day lives. Those kids home from school for those long extended periods took various tolls and maybe they were the right thing to do. Let's not you know, try and play Monday morning quarterback. I mean, p- very well-intentioned people were trying to do the right thing in navigating this pandemic. So there you go. But it had consequences. All of these policies had consequences. And now where do we go? And telling folks that they shouldn't really have an opinion was, was, was a bit tone deaf, clearly. The other big thing that happened in Virginia, Dan, was a big switch in independence. Uh, right. It looked like the Republican Party captured the independent vote. Joe Biden captured the independent vote last year, in last year's election. That was an enormous swing. An mm-hmm. enormous swing for Yunkin. How did that happen? I mean, it's, it was, was it, is it as simple as it was that combination of Biden losing popularity, beginning with Afghanistan and an inability to get anything through Congress and, and a focus on the wrong issues? You, you can look at the numbers even going back to the polls during the election. Since then, you know, the sense of headwinds, the, the continuing difficulties and finally turning the corner on the pandemic, 
you know, you can tell we're, we're plateauing now before we go into the winter. All those have weighed on the, on the presidency and on Democrats. So it was a combination of folks swinging from, there were some folks that swung from Biden to Yunkin, uh, but we also just saw a lot more people uh, who had been Biden just stay home. They didn't turn out the way they did for McAuliffe that they turned out for Biden. And, and part of that is it, it's off cycle, but also part of that is how do you turn folks out when Donald Trump's not on the ballot? Right. Uh, clearly, the clearly independents, and, and you still look at the, the numbers on Trump, beyond the, the, the very core Republican base, there's not a lot of uh, esteem for Trump. But try, just trying to tie a Republican candidate to Trump at this point doesn't work. You, you could see McAuliffe, you know, they interspersed him with footage of January, Yunkin with footage of January 6th. But ultimately, if you're, it's a reminder too, I think, to, to Democrats and other concerned folks, if, if you truly believe that uh, democracy is on the line in some of these cases and races, uh, you also have to be remembered that democracy needs to deliver results for people for them to believe in it. We have a four-seat difference right now in the House of Representatives. The Democrats have a four-seat majority. The average swing during a midterm is 25 seats in the uh, party out, but not holding the White House, right? A 25-seat shift is average, is average. So uh, a big shift would be expected in a normal year back to the Republicans uh, in the House, and that means that the Democrats likely will not have that ability to just sort of get their agenda through, though they haven't done much with that ability thus far. Right. And, and, and those, when you're down to four seats, and it's also a reapportionment year, uh, the, the Republicans could get that. What is reapportionment? Go back. That's an important thing you just said. Explain yeah. what a reapportionment year means. That's yeah, not yeah, because of the one. census, we're reallocating the, the right. congressional seats. And some of the states like Texas, Florida, states that have had population growth will get more seats. And you can flip four seats just with redistricting alone in this cycle. You don't even have to worry about the traditional switch if you're a Democrat. So given the redistricting, the, does that favor the Republicans? The redistricting? It favors Republicans just yeah. given that the, the number of state legislatures controlled. Funnily enough, Democratic states have gone to independent nonpartisan redistricting, while Republicans have gone deeper and deeper into partisan redistricting in the states they control. Uh, right. Democrats kind of unilaterally disarmed there. Beyond that, though, you've seen some uh, some of the older chairmen uh, retire. That usually says they don't want to be in the minority. So you, you have all those signals. Uh, the one thing Democrats will tell you to, to take that with a grain of salt is, one, what will the economy, the pandemic situation, how will that look like in, in, in 11 months? They see that really turning next year. If these bills are passed, the, the effect of them will starting to be felt uh, across the country. Um, and on top of that, they don't think President Trump is going to stay as quiet in 2022 as he did in, in the Virginia race. I, you know, I heard Joe Kernan on CNBC this morning. I thought he made a very good point as they were having a political discussion. Shocker that Kernan would be having a political discussion, I know. But he said, just think, I mean, what's the point of having a, a political strategy discussion today about next year? Think about a year ago and how antipodally different we were uh, as opposed to today. So uh, I, I, think there's some, I think there's some merit in that. Things can change to your recent points that you were just mm -hmm. making. You get a little more money in the system. You get a little more COVID out of the system. Moods change. Votes might change. It's a very fluid situation right. in Washington. 
Uh, I will tell you that I spoke with and spent a good deal of time with a senior, senior Republican senator recently, uh, very close to President Trump, who said, we've got him on the sidelines until the 2022 election. He's not going to announce. Uh, we're keeping him back and we're seeing the gains. And then the big question is going to be, can we keep him out after that? Now, this is a senior Republican guy who said we need to, it seemed like their intention was to keep him out and keep him on the sidelines. Clearly nobody controls him, but that does seem to be a senior Republican agenda, keeping President Trump on the sidelines. Right. Yeah, definitely the, the idea of how do you use him to, to motivate the base, you know, it's still extremely popular among the base, uh, but in such doses and in, uh, and in such way that he doesn't uh, affect your message with the suburban voter, the educated voter. Right. And finally, Dan, we're seeing a COVID spike in China again. Right. And I want to ask you if you really think that we're seeing COVID spike because they don't need much COVID in China that they just don't shut down the whole the whole city or whole town. Oh, right. Um, I think the, the, the footage of them shutting down and locking everyone in Disneyland in Shanghai because of one COVID case gives you an example of how they respond to this. One positive test in the entire theme park and everyone was locked in until they were tested and quarantined and, and sent out. So when you see COVID spikes in China, they are very small in number. But you also have to understand that their response is extremely disruptive to, to business, to people's lives. And it's just something to be considered as we talk about supply chain disruptions. You know, I, I've told for the listeners of the forecast for a long time, I'm going to remind you of a story still. At the beginning of 2020, I had dinner with the head of uh, the CEO of Accenture, the CEO of Ford, uh, other folks. Uh, I, I saw Tim, uh, visited with Tim Cook even briefly. And what I heard was, we can't get parts. And Ford said they were going to shut down production in two weeks because they could not get parts from this area I'd never heard of before in Wuhan, China. And he explained to me, I can't deliver a, a, a vehicle without a knob on the glove compartment. Uh, you people just don't buy that. So I've got to stop. And when I heard that, I went on CNBC and I said, I think that the risk for recession is no longer zero, folks. So it was my exact words. And everybody went nuts and said, FAR's calling for recession. FAR did. FAR said, yes, there's a real possibility for recession here if this supply chain issue is going to become that big. Indeed, that's what's happened. I, of course, was not prescient enough to understand the nature of this disease or what might happen. But if we see these shutdowns, we know that the shutdowns are shut down factories and it shuts down supply. And then we know that that can be very inflationary. I wonder if China's draconian approach to even one case in shutting down Disneyland until uh, everybody gets tested or shutting down a town or shutting down factories is really the right approach. Are they more scared of something? Do they know something we don't know or do they just glory and that sort of control over their population. Mm. Can you imagine, Dan Mahaffey, if all of a sudden there were a case of COVID at Disney World, huh? at Disney World, and all of a sudden in Orlando, they shut the gates, shut the gates with all of those people, all of those mothers and fathers and children and grandparents and said, you're not going anywhere until everybody is tested. 
I mean, I, I don't know how American people would react. I, I, I have a pretty yeah. good idea how Americans you, you, you would react. Have a, you would have a riot in the happiest place on earth. A riot in the happiest place on earth. So we do have to remember that these things are accepted right. in China. And if that you are, if they, you are they, living under a communist regime, that's just, this is not abnormal. It's accepted there. I think it also reflects that they, they don't have confidence in the nature of their vaccines. They don't have the mRNA vaccines widespread as we do. Uh, also, Chinese, uh, the Chinese healthcare system has uh, very limited capacity to deal with it. You, you saw that in Wuhan when it was out of control. So those are all reasons they are on the side of keeping it, uh, keeping it under control. Uh, and then on top of that, the, they don't really mind the factory closures as much when they're already dealing with energy shortages and, and concerns there uh, as well. So the, the, the state of the Chinese economy and the effect it has on supply chains, all those I think you keep an eye on going into the, the end of the year. Stan Mahaffey is uh, from the Center for the Study of the Presidency, the senior political analyst on the forecast. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to come right back with Dr. Jeffrey Lacker, former president of the Richmond Federal Reserve Bank, a professor of economics, senior professor of economics at Virginia Commonwealth University. What is the Fed doing? Are they on the right course? Or should we be happy about what's happening in the economy? And is he worried about inflation? All when we come back on the forecast. Please stay with us. We hope you're enjoying this week's edition of The Farcast and that you'll join us in coming weeks with special guests Jenny Harrington, Jack Perugian, and more Farcast fan favorites. And now, this week's special guest, Dr. Jeffrey Lacker, and your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. Joining me now, Dr. Jeffrey Lacker, former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, Virginia. He was on the Fed. Uh, president from 2004 to 2017, served under uh, Chairman Greenspan and Bernanke and Yellen and uh, just just amazing amounts of experience. A distinguished professor in the Department of Economics, Virginia Commonwealth University, one of the brightest guys I know in the world and one of the nicest. Welcome back to the forecast, Jeff. Basically, Jeff, my theory is that we're seeing inflation because we have a supply chain problem along with a whole lot of cash and liquidity in the system but that this but this supply chain problem will get solved and resolved that capitalism is probably the most efficient system in the world for doing that once that happens we go back to a 2% gdp growth sort of an environment two two and a half something like that when you look at population growth and productivity that's the rat that goes through the snake the problem we had in the beginning of 2020 was the Fed couldn't get inflation going. Why? Because we, for all of the monetary policy, we couldn't generate more demand. And there was not more money hitting the middle class. We didn't have any wage inflation. And in fact, we, we hadn't seen any real wage gains adjusted for inflation for a couple of decades, more or less. So I am suggesting or I have this notion that while wages will remain high and rents will remain high and a lot of the inflation that we've seen will stay in the system, uh, the rate of change a year out, 18 months out, will level back off to that basic baseline of GDP growth. 
I think it's a reasonably plausible scenario uh, to, to feel as if uh, once the supply chains uh, disruptions work themselves out and the private sector has ample incentives to make that happen, uh, once those work themselves out, inflation can subside. But I think it's important and built into your question was the recognition uh, that, that isn't widespread and uniform, I think, that it's always supply relative to demand. So without the surge in spending this year, uh, the supply chain uh, problems and hiccups we had could have been resolved more gradually over time. So it's, it's always a matter of supply relative to demand. Now, having said that, um, I think that the, the idea of, of inflation subsiding in maybe 18 months is uh, probably the more sanguine of the set of reasonably plausible scenarios. Uh, other scenarios that are, are less sanguine, have inflation staying higher, I think deserve some consideration as well. I think that it's um, plausible that uh, expectations of higher inflation um, get built into people's outlook and psychology and business planning and consumer planning. And that imparts a momentum that keeps inflation from subsiding in 2023. Um, and I, that's the big risk that the Fed is running now. Um, they're taking their time about pushing back on the surge of inflation uh, we've seen, but I, I know it has to be uh, rattling them inside uh, the halls of uh, the Federal Reserve banks uh, because if expectations get um, lodged into the system, inflation could be stubbornly persistent for a couple of years. Does Jay Powell stick with his with with his taper through June or does he accelerate? Does he blink at some point? Yeah, no, I, I there's a they've left the, the door wide open. Yes. Uh, for changing for for going faster on the taper starting at the beginning of the year. So they've they've told you the amounts they're going to taper by for the next two months. And then they basically said, after that, probably at the same pace, but we'll look at it again. So they've, they've teed up a reconsideration of the pace of tapering, I, I think, as a compromise between those who wanted to go faster and those who wanted to go a little more slowly. So they'll just fight it out again in December and then figure out, you know, then we'll find out what January taper pace is supposed to look like and, and so on. How, how much of this sort of threading the political needle is, has, is based around uh, Jay Powell's reappointment? Well, that's a good question. I mean, you knew they weren't going to take a strong stance uh, right. at this meeting. You knew they weren't going to send a strong signal about rate increases. Um, but he, he still, he had to be realistic. I mean, the, the inflation numbers have been so much worse than they hoped for over the last two months. He had to do something to maintain some credibility. So I think, you know, rolling out the taper on time and signaling, you know, a willingness to consider rate increases next year, um, I, I, you know, is, is, is the farthest he could do without pushing, pushing his luck on renomination. Did, did he do it? Do you think he did it? And yeah, do you think he'll I, be, re I, will he be, will he get nominated again? You know, I, people are saying that that's the thing. And I, I, I think that's plausible. I think um, you know, the hidden actors in this are the Republicans on the 
Senate Banking Committee. And, uh, you know, I think their resistance to anybody uh, more progressive than Jay uh, is, is likely to, you know, mean that he gets renominated. And I, my guess is that the delay is um, an artifact of the White House trying to put together a, a slate of other Fed appointments, other Fed governor appointments, maybe even other regulatory appointments that kind of round out uh, to a package that has um, you know, diversity as a, a defining feature. And so we're going to add to the Fed's mandate beyond you know, uh, price stability, unemployment. We're now going to add diversity. We're going to add a number of other things to the Fed's yeah. mandate. Uh, we're talking already about the disenfranchised poor and how policy has affected the lower and middle class. I mean, that, that's got to be heaped on the Federal Reserve now, too. Why does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Fed's taken it on willingly over the last couple of years. Um, I think in response to reading the tea leaves in Congress, knowing how the Democrats um, view things and knowing that the Democrats were likely to take over in 2020, I think that um, they've moved voluntarily themselves to broaden and make more sort of diversity focused their employment mandate. Um, I think that's going to box box them in to some extent next year and, and going to raise some tensions. But that's why it's so puzzling that there's so much carping on the left about Powell. I mean, he's moved the institution in a progressive direction more rapidly than, you know, anyone. And he's dovish. I mean, are you really going to get a more dovish Fed chairman? I mean, I thought Janet Yellen was dovish. She is. She was dovish. But I don't I, he's there's nothing hawkish about yep. Jay Powell. No, there isn't. There isn't. Lyle um, Maynard, Lyle going to be um, more uh, yeah. dovish. I mean, how, how yeah. do you do that? Yeah, yeah. It's a real question. It's a real question. He's he's going to be this is going to be a real test for him. If he gets renominated, you got the hearings and then the gauntlet of, you know, the inflation data for the next six months. So he's right. he's he's got his hands full. Uh, and But you think he stays in the job? Yeah, I Okay. He stays in the job. I want to go back to my first theory, which which is this idea that this uh, supply chain issue is going to go through the snake at some point and is going to clear itself. And I think you correctly pointed out there's there's also it's not just the supply. It is the demand. And we've seen some really robust demand at a time when supply has been tight. We had a whole lot of money in the system. We had a whole lot of uh, uh, stimulus and social uh, spending uh, uh, earlier in the year, and we saw savings rates really increase. When I looked at a recent J.P. Morgan report for their credit cards, I think uh, they reported last quarter that they had something like a 34% increase in credit card spending and only a 2% increase in credit card balances. Did you see that? Did, no, did you see those numbers? I'm not surprised. They've, they've put out some great data on this, and and the, the, the overhang of, of savings that's way out of bounds relative to American consumers' savings propensity in the past, it's just hanging there. And it, I think it's held back by people want to travel to places and they're not traveling. People want to do stuff that they're not, do, not able to do because of COVID. And there's, there's companies that haven't opened up yet, again, haven't reopened because of COVID. When they do, that'll just add more income on the on the employment side, and will add to the demand uh, coming at uh, you know the American business sector. 
So, so this yeah, demand the, isn't going away and the supply chain is an issue and going away. So we could see hotter inflation before we see cooler inflation. Uh, it's reasonably plausible. In my Does view. it spook the, the Fed? So, I mean, you see that. I see that. Look, it's, it's one thing if you see it. If I see it, means any moron can see it. <laughs> so if, if I see it, does the Fed see it and will they feel they have to react or are they going to stay measured and data dependent? I feel like the Fed's become data independent, Jeff, uh, yeah. so, that they're going to do what they're going to do independent uh, of the data. They're not data independent, but they're walking a fine line. I think that um, within the Fed, surely there's the broad awareness of the potential for adverse scenarios. But I think they're also cognizant of the extent to which their communications can make their lives more difficult. If they were to admit how nervous they are, it it would potentially complicate the situation. And people would say, oh, the Fed thinks inflation might, you know, really rip next year rather than sort of smoothly go down over the course of the year. And so I, I think that I think they strive to be as hopeful as possible in their public communications while remaining reasonably plausible. And the data pushes the lower boundary on reasonably plausible forecasts for inflation. You know, so they, yeah. they, they ratchet it up when the data comes in, but it's still a smooth decline to 2% that they give us as a forecast. Surely they put more probability on, on some more dire circumstances going forward internally, but they, in public, they have to, they have to, I don't want to say rosy, but they have to be reasonably sanguine because if they don't, it just makes it more likely that people build in expectations of continued inflation. That changes those expectations of inflation, which are very, very important. All right. You know, we're, we're already going long, Jeff, but anytime we get the privilege of talking with you and getting your thoughts and opinions here, uh, we're, we're happy to go long. But just a note to listeners, we're going to go a little long here with Dr. Lacker because we always get to learn so much. So we see this trend with supply chain continuing, demand continuing, inflation looking hotter. We got a stronger payroll number this morning. We've got what looks to be like that full uh, employment kind of a number or range. Uh, We're going to see some more wage inflation. Jeff, what are the odds that this whole thing ends in a calm, nice way? Can we see that uh, gentle landing, soft landing that the Fed has always uh, striven for for so many years Will it happen or what? where are the pitfalls? How does this go way off the rails and get us into trouble? Really good question. So the, 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 the benign scenario is that the Fed moves in a timely way to adjust interest rates upward. And- Well, okay, uh, well, timely, what does that mean? What's a timely, when should they start to do that? Jeff Lacker mm-hmm. is chairman of the Federal Reserve. When do you have your first rate hike? I would have, I would have, I would have teed it up for the first quarter. Uh, Last year or this year? This year. (laughs) (laughs) Next year year at the latest. But the danger, the real danger, you're asking about the adverse scenario. And the the real danger is that the Fed uh, waits too long, keeps a happy face on things, and then is forced to act very aggressively. And when they do that, it's very hard to calibrate um, in a way that it assures us a smooth uh, landing, as you say, and they end up 
sort of overdoing it and causing a recession. So that would come in 2023, 2024, something like that. But that's, that's the risk. The adverse scenario is they wait too long, then have to move fast, uh, then feel compelled to move strongly and rapidly. Long rates shoot up, other rates shoot up, equities fall, and um, there's a, a broad sort of pullback in discretionary spending that, that uh, leads to a recession. Give us your, uh, give us some odds now. We're going to send you to Vegas. You're <laughs> going to be our bookmaker. Tell me now, give me odds that we uh, end up, give me, give me odds on the benign landing and give me <laughs> odds on this is going to suck. <laughs> um, you know, if you're not going to ask me to put money on it myself, you shouldn't put any weight on what I tell you. <laughs> All right. Well, let's hear the odds and then we'll decide about money. I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to say, yeah. So do you I think mean, it's, I, think, I mean, you don't think you, you think that there's a higher percentage chance that we have a benign outcome or a higher percentage chance that it uh, goes wrong. Uh, I think it's about, it, it might be pretty even, you know, it might be 40, 60, one way or another, it might be around there. So 40, which way? I'm not going to say. <laughs> I mean, you know, what's what's at stake here? I mean, what am I going to do? Come back and say you were wrong? Uh, yes, <laughs> yeah, I, sure you will. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I might if I remember. Um, but typically, because I like having you back on, I just come on and say, gee, you've been so smart and you've been right every damn time. I've, you've never been wrong about anything. Let me, let me, okay, I, I'll, I'll let you off the hook for right now. Because ladies and gentlemen, I, I've tried to push him on stuff like this before. I don't get anywhere. This is experience, not, uh, not cowardice, I promise. Okay. Uh, were, were you on the Fed when Greenspan was chairman? Yes. I, I and, and I I certainly remember those days. I was an institutional bond salesman, and all of a sudden, one you couldn't understand. Of course, when when the chairman spoke or addressed the media, he 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 reveled in that. But then he would come out in between meetings with these 50, 50 basis point hikes, and you just it would come out of nowhere, and it sounded like he did it unilaterally. Did he do those unilaterally? And do you think we could see those sorts of hikes again? I mean, we have a new, gentler, calmer, more transparent Fed now that really has made an anti-Greenspan shift. Does that continue or was there use to those sort of between meeting hikes? Um, so the Fed has gotten to a place where it's, I, I think it's gonna strongly avoid those, at, uh, certainly hikes, strongly avoid having to do that. Um, I think it it's, uh, they, they're very averse. They're much more averse than under Greenspan to shocking markets, to surprising markets. So uh, they put a, a very high premium on preparing markets for what they're doing. I think they overreacted to the taper tantrum a decade ago, almost a decade ago. And so it's the, the communication practices at the Fed are different enough now. Back then, the Fed statement was uh, sort of cryptic. Uh, back in the 90s, when those rate hikes you're talking about happened, there was, uh, you know, the minutes were delayed, uh, the yeah. transcripts were, you, you had, you really had no idea. And Greenspan was a very strong, he knew what he wanted to do. He would consult with, with two people on the committee, but it was really Greenspan calling the shots. Now, um, the two people he, the chairman called, consults with, and it's now three actually, Two of them, Clarita and um, Williams, 
are very good economists. And so I think it's more of a process of the three of them reaching a consensus. I think they've, I've read that they've added Lael to the sort of the inner troika uh, that works on policy. But I, I think that, um, I think 50 surprise rate hikes are like un, unfathomable now. Now surprise cuts, they're willing to do. And they did that in, we did that in January 08. And I think that's not inconsistent um, with the way they, they approach things, but they like to telegraph stuff that's averse to markets. So they're going to tell you before they raise rates. Final, final question, Jeff, and we're over time, but this has been, this has been fabulous. And I have learned so much as I always do, not to mention how much I enjoyed talking with you. Um, your GDP, thoughts for GDP for 2022 and 2023, please. Oh, now I'm going to beg off. Sorry. Uh, a good ballpark 2022. I mean, we're already there. I, I mean, think GDP, I think 2022 is going to turn out strong. We had got a strong third quarter number. I think um, fourth quarter is going to be strong too. I think we're, we're going to clear some stuff up. The Today's employment report suggests that. Um, and that I, takes, I that's 20, 2021, right? There's 2021. Yeah, 2021. 22, yeah. I think is going to be strong as well. Could be, I mean, could so, it be a 5% year? Sure, easy. I think anything between um, three and six is plausible. And then 2023, everybody's expecting that we go lower, that we're back around that two to three percent range. You think it falls that quickly? Yeah, I think I think it it should. Um, but you know, in my mind, there's a probability we get a you know a negative number for the second half of 23. A negative number for the second half of 23, which sounds yeah, like we recession. Sometime. Yeah. We get a recession sometime. Ladies and gentlemen, he wouldn't answer my soft landing question, but <laughs> I boxed him in on that one. So one for Lacker, one for Far. Dr. Jeffrey Lacker, former president of the Richmond Federal Reserve Bank, distinguished professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, and my great friend for many, many years. Thanks so much for being with us on the Farcast, Jeff. Thanks, You're the thanks best. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's been a pleasure. We really enjoyed it. Ladies and gentlemen, that's Thank it for much. another Farcast. We will be back again next week as we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world. In Washington, D.C., I'm Michael Farr. We'll see you next week. We appreciate you being with us in this week's edition of the Farcast, and thanks to Michael's guest, Jim Labenthal, Dan Mahaffey, and special guest, Dr. Jeffrey Lacker. We love hearing from you every week, and we try to respond to all of your notes and suggestions. You can reach us at hjennings at farmmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like to hear us cover in coming weeks. The Farcast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Parr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all major podcast platforms. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. The information statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers who are not officers, employees, or agents of Farm Miller & Washington or Hightower Advisors, are not necessarily those of Farm Miller & Washington, Hightower Advisors, or any firm any of our guests may represent. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any security, index, fund, manager, or strategy. 
we strongly recommend you review with a financial professional before you make any investment decision. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmiller.com. We are here to help, and I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. Please share the forecast with friends and colleagues as we continue on with Season 5. Go beyond the headlines each week with the forecast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Miller and Washington LLC is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. All information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Farm Miller and Washington LLC and Hightower Advisors LLC have not independently verified accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Farm Miller and Washington LLC and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representation or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements, errors, or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Farm Miller and Washington LLC and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and the materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Farm Miller and Washington LLC and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax and or legal advisor for related questions.